Robert J. Lang has been working with origami for over 50 years and is now recognized as one of the world's leading masters of the art and one of the pioneers of the marriage of origami with mathematics and technology. He has consulted on applications of origami to medical devices, airbag design, and space telescopes, is the author or co-author of 21 books and numerous technical articles, and lectures and consults on the connections between origami, science, and technology. Robert Lang, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you. Uh, you know, we're big fans of your work, and I just it's just the most amazing profession that you have. You're both a, a master origamist and a physicist, and, you know, you have this varied career. And you started work at NASA's uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which seems like such a high-tech world. How is it that you made your way back to your early love of origami, a folding paper. And for those who may think that origami is just a game that children play with a piece of paper, the applications of this ancient art form are pretty amazing. If you could go into some of those. Sure. Uh, I, I'd really been doing origami all along. In fact, I, I, I was doing origami before I ever got into math or science or anything like that. It was a hobby all through childhood, starting from about the age of six. And uh, and, and really revved up in college when uh, I think the, uh, the, the challenge of college kind of revved my brain into higher gear and, and origami was an outlet for, for some of that. So I stayed deeply involved in origami as a hobby during my regular work, which, as you noted, my first uh, job post-PhD was at Jet Propulsion Lab. Um, I was there for uh, four and a half years or so. And then um, I, I went to a company in Silicon Valley that was doing R&D on semiconductor lasers, which was the field that I'd also been doing at JPL. And, and I was there then for the next uh, nine to ten years. Um, but throughout that time, pursuing origami avidly as, as a hobby. And... And because of my, my technical background was particularly theoretical physics, developing mathematical models of lasers and optical electronics and the things I was working on. And I had the feeling that origami would be amenable to that kind of approach. It, it seemed like origami was governed by the sorts of laws that we could describe mathematically. And one of the things we do in science and engineering is if we can build a mathematical description of the field that we're working in, then we can use the tools of mathematics to learn more, to accomplish the goals that we've set out to do. And, and so I, I wanted to do that with origami and, and tried it, and it, it actually worked quite well. And, uh, and, and I incorporated these ideas into how I designed origami, and I, I had designed quite a few pieces, and I'd written books with collections of my designs. But all along, I'd had the idea um, that I wanted to write a book teaching other people not just how to fold my work, but how they could design their own origami using the same techniques that I was using for designing. 
And, uh, and I was doing origami nights and weekends as a hobby. But uh, as I, I tried to write this book over a period of about 10 years and really wasn't making headway and finally came to the conclusion that the only way I'd ever get it written was if I was working on it full time. So that was the trigger to decide, do I keep going down the path of being a laser physicist or do I take a break and write this book? And, and I felt like the book needed to be written. So, so I quit my job um, to spend some time writing the book, but then at the same time started following up on leads that I'd never really been able to follow up on in the world of origami. Um, lecturing, teaching, consulting, um, doing uh, work commissions for, uh, for commercial art and the like. And, uh, and that, after a couple of years, that was working out quite well. It was uh, keeping me occupied and employed, and, and it was a whole lot of fun. So I just never really went back to, engine, to, origami, uh, to laser engineering. But, uh, but it took me into a world of origami engineering. When I had written my first papers on the mathematics of origami, that kind of got my name into the technical literature. And so then people in engineering who thought folding might apply to their work um, would do a literature search and they'd find me and contact me. And, and that led to consulting on uh, various engineering projects, um, some space projects and uh, some, some commercial um, products that used folding and the like. And so I found myself back in the world of engineering, uh, but doing origami as well. It seems like it's so interesting because it's genuinely interdisciplinary and that the way that you can apply it, because I think that's one of the things that when one is um, intelligent, but one gets very good at a specialization that you might get, end up being bored, get, presented always the same problems or similar problems. But it's interesting that you've been able to branch out in this way is because it's like this underlying language uh, that you could apply itself to nanotechnology, to these massive space telescopes, to, you know, as you say, commercial applications. And uh, that's so fascinating that and I just, I just wonder, because I think we've all encountered, you know, to, you know, lesser degree, you know, when we were children, you know, the wonder of like turning a humble piece of paper into um, a crane, let's say that would be a common one. But in all your hours of folding and thinking about how an insect is made or how a fish or a cuckoo clock, I mean, amazing things that you, I didn't think you could get on one piece of paper. There's this it must give you this great respect of the, the pattern underlying all life. It gives me a respect, I, I, I guess, for commonalities of concepts. Um, you know, there's, there's certainly huge differences between um, life and the, the structure of life and biology and living things, even although, in fact, we do see folding showing up in, in interesting ways in the physiology of, of living things. But, uh, but one of the things we see both in the natural world and, and in a lot of worlds of engineering and science is, is common patterns 
that show up where we see the same pattern showing up in very diverse places. Um, in, you know, in biology, in life, for example, we see that wings and flight evolved quite independently in, um, in many different, in birds, in, in bats, in insects, um, and the like. And, and in origami, we, we see underlying patterns that govern very diverse folding shapes. Um, and if we're lucky, we can, we can describe those patterns mathematically. Um, but even if we can't yet figure out what the math is that describe them, um, there is a part of our brain that recognizes uh, similar sorts of patterns of folds and structures that show up in, in diverse designs and applications. Yeah, it's so amazing. Are you looking forward to, I mean, because you're always getting these invitations to explore your own creativity and combine it with other disciplines. Are you, are there, I think you have ongoing projects with space uh, telescopes and, and are there others that you really, you know, excited to apply what you've learned? Um, yeah, there, there are. They've, um, sometimes they, they'll take, take kind of journeys that, that travel far, that travel away from origami, but by, but, but, but by that point, the project has become interesting. As an, as an example, there's a, uh, there's a medical device that I consulted on, um, and I have to, I have to be a little bit vague about it, but essentially it was, the goal was to start with a flat sheet and then fold it into a shape that conformed to, uh, to a particular part of the body, put it that way. And that was very definitely an origami problem. And in fact, it was, it was a, I thought this is going to be a very nice problem because I, first I, I knew how to solve it and it drew upon and it would be solvable using mathematical techniques that I'd already developed for origami. Um, and, and, and so I quickly came up with a solution that pure origami that worked. But then as we got into the product development, we realized um, the product would be improved if we cut away some of the material. So, uh, you know, so at that point, we're kind of leaving the realm of at least the most common form of origami. Most common origami is no cuts, but we're cutting. We're actually removing material. And then, in fact, it, when it finally gets to the, the version of the product that's going to be used, there's... Um, there's material being cut away. There's stuff being glued together. Um, so we've actually moved pretty far from this original origami concept, but we're still drawing. A, we're still using the underlying math that described the original concept, and uh, and so that both keeps it interesting and exciting to pursue. But another part of of the what makes it exciting is seeing that it's actually going to help people. Um, when when this version of the product comes out. Yes, because we as artists, and I am an artist as well, but a painter, uh, so I really admire what you do because you do that with a piece of paper. Like I have things I can, I can use color and other things <laughs> to create illusions, but you have to do it, you know, physically create. Uh, but yes, we as artists have to put aside our artistic uh, sensibilities or the rules that we um, apply to our art 
if it's for the greater good. Uh, but that's so interesting. You can apply it. Uh, I, it just occurred to me is that you're able to think ingenious uh, ways a- around things. I just thought if you were ever, God forbid it should happen, but if you were ever locked away and put in solitary, you might be able to design your way out. <laughs> uh, uh, well, design, designing to escape solitary might be a, a, a bit tough, but it... Uh, um, but certainly I, I could probably keep myself entertained with, with my own thoughts for a while. Uh, but I should, I should mention that um, in origami design, historically, people have always used their intuition to design origami. You know, they've, they've, they've probably started by folding traditional shapes or folding designs by others, developed an intuitive understanding of how the paper behaves and then from there they can explore that intuition to create new shapes and and that was the way designing worked for for years and years and um and that was the way it worked for me but but i eventually hit a limit to what i could do with my intuition and and so part of my motivation for exploring mathematical methods was to externalize some of the design process that that if I could, if I could get some of the design process on paper um, in a meaningful way, then I could handle more complicated goals than I could fit just in in my brain. So, in a in a way, it was it was my own limitation in in what I could and couldn't visualize intuitively that led me to develop these design techniques that could then let me go much farther than I and and at the time almost almost anyone else had been able to do in, in terms of complexity of, of design. Um, and the advantage was I can't teach someone else uh, how to intuit a design, but I, but I could teach them how to use the the design techniques that ultimately went into that that book that I wrote. Um, and and now quite a few people use those techniques, but then they can add on the layer of their intuition to take them even farther. I actually did have a question about um, using computers for your designs. Um, Have you or did you experience any resistance from traditional origami artists because you were using computers or lasers, or was it pretty accepted in that community? I think it was pretty accepted if, if... if there was uh, if there was resistance, then then they only <laughs> set it privately or when or when I wasn't around. Um, there's it's funny though, the big um, the big resistance to using computers happened not for using computers in design, um, but in using computers for diagramming for drawing the step by step instructions. Mm. So up until up until uh, let's say probably about the early '80s, mid '80s, um, all origami books were drawn with hand-drawn illustrations, and my first couple books were the same way, pen and ink drawing. And then in the uh, in the in the early '90s, late '80s, early '90s, good computer drawing programs came along, and several people um, began using computer for, for diagramming and, and enthusiastically proselytizing it because 
you didn't need to be an artist. Um, prior to that, to, to, if you wanted to write an origami book, you had to kind of be an artist to, or at least a, a, draft, a good draftsman to draw these diagrams. But with computers, um, it, it democratized the process of diagramming and lots more people could diagram and get their work out. And there was some pretty serious resistance to that, to, to using computers. Um, over time, that resistance sort of melted away. And, and now it's not only accepted, it's, it's actually preferred, um, you know, that we encourage people to use computers for, for, for um, diagramming. But for designing, I haven't seen a whole lot of resistance, um, at least not resistance expressed in the form of you shouldn't use computers. There's certainly plenty of people who say it's not for me. But that's just part of the artistic choice. And, and to come back to, uh, um, you know, to you being a painter, it's the same choice as someone saying, well, I'm going to stick to watercolors. I'm not going to use acrylics or oils or, or mixed media. It's just an artistic choice. And it's, it's, it's so interesting. And Connor, uh, you as a musician, when you uh, came across um, Robert's uh, work, uh, I mean, what, how are you using um, math in your music? Or did, does it excite you to think about, you know, what might your music be translated to in, if it were a structure? That's interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't, wouldn't say I so much think about math in it. But I guess translated to a structure, I kind of see it as, I mean, I'm really into building stories. And I would say I, if I visualize it, and it's not so much as math, but I more visualize it as kind of building a home and filling it with pictures. So just kind of like as, as if each song is this picture and let's say an album is a home. It's imagining what are the pictures on the wall as you walk through. Um, so I guess it's more abstract, not quite uh, in terms of math, but I guess I should consider that. I think I and and a lot of other people find a deep connection between origami and music. Um, there's similarities in, for, in, for example, we use a restricted set of, of building blocks. In, in music, it would be the um, the standard tuning or tuning of whatever scale you use. Yeah. Um, it's 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 discrete, and, and and you put these discrete elements together in different combinations and it's that creates an effect much larger than that of of the individual elements yeah and the uh, sum is greater than its individual parts that's a big thing in music they say and we do that in in origami that we put together these discrete folds to create a shape that whose then effect is much larger than just being a bunch of folds mm -hmm. there's also a similarity in that there's two distinct artistic forms the um there's the composition and the performance hmm. and you know you you can you have we have performers uh who just play other people's compositions mm -hmm. and we have composers and then we have people who do both and we have the same thing in origami that um i can compose a, an origami design uh but then someone else can follow my my instructions or the score and create their folding of it and and bring their own artistry to the folding mm -hmm. um and i so i find that uh parallels very closely what happens with music mm -hmm. so in fact i ref 
I give my origami designs, uh, opus numbers, sequential numbers, yeah, similar to music, and it's because it's inspired by that practice within music. That's really interesting. I mean, I, I think another similarity I think of is just that they're both kind of this universal thing where it doesn't really matter the language, the culture. You can listen to a piece of music or you can look at a piece of origami, and even if you don't understand the technical side or in music the language, you can still appreciate it and get a feeling from it. Like, I can look at this chameleon on your desk and mm. I mean I may have never even seen a chameleon before but it just communicates something and it's beautiful yeah thank you I love also how you I mean the planning process in advance the folding may take you know several hours but the planning process months and there's just to think that all in advance and then to what's the beauty of it just to see what is the flattened piece of paper with um the diagrams as you, you spoke of um the diagrams um or the folds how 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 will it will end up being transformed into this you know a fish with a thousand scales or you know just i can't even imagine and and i i i still couldn't i couldn't duplicate it so the patients i mean i think it's a great lesson for, even for children who you know won't go end up being becoming uh, master um, origamists uh, but the what te- what it teaches young people also or people of any age, but about patience, diligence, you know, discipline. There are great lessons in life. There are lessons, but on the topic of patience, I, I, would, I, issue, uh, I would caution people um, because I, I firmly believe um, you don't need patience for something you love. Right. Um, You know, people look at me and say, you know, you'll fold for several hours at a stretch. You must have great patience. And I say, no, I I don't. I'm an impatient person. But origami doesn't require patience. Uh, Watching baseball requires patience, but but not origami. Um, And so and I I think it is good for um, for people to. Uh, to, to experience sticking to something um, even beyond the point that it's fun just to, just to, just to learn discipline. But I don't want to see origami turned into turned into something that a person is forced to do to teach them stick-to-itiveness. I think people should if, if people really want to be good at origami, they should fold what is fun. And the 10,000 hours will come naturally. Um, but if you're forcing yourself to do it, then it's not fun and you probably shouldn't be doing that. You should pick something else. Oh, I fully agree. I shouldn't perhaps not use the word patience, but it's just a lesson in showing that something beautiful can come out of the end of it when you apply yourself. And it seems like unconsciously uh, young people, uh, you know, it will give them stretch their imagination unconsciously they may be picking up principles of math because math is as you say it's a pattern it can be translated in the physical world and this they'll be absorbing when actually practicing an art and i personally i 
I feel lucky because I came of age before there was a lot of distraction and what before you know the internet was everywhere and where I feel lucky that we were told to play play outdoors here's a piece of paper folded into a bird here you know tell each other stories and so I think that the origami belongs to that family of timeless games that really exercise the imagination and the intelligence uh, and it doesn't require all the technology, but down the road it can have applications in technology. Yeah, I think I think so. Well, and what you said about um, ha- like not having to have patience for something you love, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Um, and I read about for you as a kid, um, you were introduced to origami, if I'm correct, because a teacher showed you an origami book in class. Is that correct? Yeah, I, that story's out there, but. I I think I I think I I discovered it myself in a in a craft book and I I I, I may have checked out the craft book from a library so it may oh, okay. you know, it was a long time ago <laughs> yes, um, so it may have come from school um, but but I I discovered it kind of on my own just looking for things mm-hmm. to do what about it when you were a kid like what do you think was the core thing about origami that because it's, it's an interesting thing as a kid, especially, to see that and go, oh, I want to do that. That's the thing I want to do all the time. What about it so interested you as a kid, too? Yeah, th- that I, rem- I remember that part very well, and it's, it's, still, it's still there for me. Um, first, and perhaps most important, the barrier to entry was low. All, you, all I needed was paper, and paper was free. <laughs> yes. And... The penalty for mistakes was low, because if I did a bad fold or something ripped, I could just throw it away, grab another sheet, and start over. As opposed to if you're, you know, building something from a kit and you mess up, well, it's ruined. You, you, know, you, yeah. you can't do anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, um, so that was a big part of the appeal. But then also a part of the appeal was that you could make different things. Um, from the same starting material. So even that, that first book had four different designs, and that was amazing. I could, I could make four different shapes. Um, but I, it also made it easy to play, um, to, to try new things and try to modify uh, what I did. And, I, and I've always liked that. I mean, when the, I first learned to do something, the next question I ask is, how can I change it? to do something yeah. new or different. And origami made it very easy to try that out. And uh, and and it still does. I mean and, and I still even now if I'm if I learn some new abstract mathematical technique, one of the first things I do is say, what can I do with this to do to do something new? Um, and and when I'm trying to to solve origami problems, it's it's not just to create a single shape, but also it's it's like, how can this be a springboard to a whole bunch of new things? Mm-hmm. I guess that's why you don't need patience because you're never bored. Yeah, um, and in fact, uh, I, I mean, I jump around a lot um, and origami has allowed me to do that. I, if I had to do the same thing just over and over and over, um, I'd get sick of it really quick. But in, in origami, I can, I can jump from genre to genre and then come back to things and let ideas sort of lie fallow for a while and then suddenly a 
they'll sprout a new, a new shoot of, of how to approach something. Hello, my name is Connor Kinsley, a performing arts podcaster with The Creative Process. For this interview, I had the privilege of going in person to Robert Lang's home studio, and it was stunning to say the least. Every direction I looked, I saw a piece of origami that caught my eye, and upon further inspection, I found myself in awe of the intricacy displayed in his work, sometimes unable to believe it all began as a single sheet of paper. He explained to me that much of his inspiration for origami comes from the natural world, as he is an avid outdoorsman. According to Robert, one of the most important aspects to consider when imitating nature through origami is preserving the true character of the animal. And he said that sometimes less folds can do a better job of this than more. During a tour of his home nestled high in the hills above Los Angeles, he told me that deer, bears, and birds frequently visit, soon to be replicated through his masterful folding of paper. In my opinion, the beauty of Robert Lang's work can be best observed and understood when seen in person as is the case with a lot of art. Seeing photos of his work elicits a surface-level appreciation, but being able to get up close and take it in from different angles in real time is when a deep respect emerges. The crisp paper contorted into hundreds of micro-folds imitating a feathered wing, colored in earth tones with shadow and light bringing it to life. It was a tactile beauty that I believe cannot be replicated through a screen. After having to consume art through digital mediums for so long, it was a pleasure and a privilege to be in the same room and see with my own eyes the work of a master like Robert Lang. Now, back to the interview. One thing that interests us deeply is that uh, we have uh, a parallel podcast, which which will appear in both the creative process and One Planet. And we are, you know, having all these conversations with experts about the environment. And so it seems, and I don't know all the applications, but it seems like uh, origami leads itself to this zero waste thinking that we have to be thinking around and and so maybe there's some other applications that I don't know if we always think about you know the containers we use the things like this are there some other applications that are coming down the pipeline that are interesting to you or how could how can you apply yourself to this origami shows up in um in reusable structures um and 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 so Things that are reusable um, are typically something that needs to stow and deploy repeatedly. You know, that you fold it down to a small packet and then unfold it as opposed to something that you'd use once that you, uh, you, you open it out and fix it in position and then destroy it when you're done. So there is that, there is that potential avenue for origami to, to contribute to environmental applications. But we also need to be a little careful that when we when we apply origami solutions and, and very often origami substitutes folds for some other 
function like cutting and gluing. You know, if, if I uh, there's there are shapes I could make by cutting and gluing bits together, or I could make it by um, by a single sheet and just using folding. And on the surface, it might seem that oh, just using folding is is simpler than cutting and gluing, but you might need more material to accommodate the extra folds that origami brings in. So anytime we take origami into an application, away from purely aesthetics, and, and actually try to use it in applications, we have to be pretty acutely aware of its limitations and that an origami solution may not be the most efficient for considerations of, of cost or, uh, or manufacturing or environmental friendliness. And for instance, uh, in terms of solar panels, um, you know, in, in terms of low light periods during winter months, I mean, might there be applications where you could increase the surface area and the ability to absorb sunlight during, you know, uh, low sunlight conditions? There could be. Um, and, and so, yes, you could make an origami solar array that, that gets larger in winter and then reduces in summer. But you would still ask yourself, if it can get larger, why not have it larger in summer and actually collect more radiation? You know, where, where is there an application where we want it to collect a constant amount of power as opposed to just as much power as, as possible. Um, so, you know, th these are the, the types of questions that we ask early in the design because they'll, they'll drive us to a solution. The place where origami plays a role in, in solar um, is where it's especially well-suited is if the, if the array needs to stow and deploy. Um, if it needs to get smaller. And that's why space is a, is a good application domain because you always need to get it smaller to fit in a rocket. Um, and, and you might say, well, I, I also, if I'm doing an installation out in the middle of nowhere in Nevada, I might uh, want it smaller uh, to get it there. Uh, you know, travel on a trek. You certainly don't want to take a giant array. But then you need to say, is it better to use folds or is it better to use lots of little pieces that you bolt together on the scene? And, you know, currently it's more cost effective if, you, if it's Nevada to have lots of little pieces you bolt together. If the location is um, in the orbit of, around Jupiter, then having one, one that deploys is preferred. Well, it's certainly amazing all the different applications that you you have for this, and the, and you are able to bring that sense of fun and discovery to to all these uh, different disciplines. And at the same time, you have never—I mean, you've got—you're so fully in the the origami world, but at the same time, you haven't—you know—you've published over um, or co-authored over eighty publications. Is that right? Within and you've maintained your links with the world of physics. You know, tell me how. Tell us how that continues. Well, um, the first few years after I af after I had quit my job and started going down the or the mostly origami path, I, I kept up with um, with physics. I edited one of the trade journal. I was editor in chief of one of the trade journals 
um, and I consulted um, about a day a week in the in the laser field. After a couple of years, though, I found I had enough origami demands that um, that something I, I had to start saying no to someone, and I and I decided to start saying no to to lasers. So really, I haven't. Uh, had much technical work in lasers at all for 15 years or, or more. Um, but the change has been, I, I've continued to, to publish technically, and, and, but now I'm, my publications are on applications of origami, and, and the venues are different. Instead of publishing in uh, uh, the Journal of Quantum Electronics, I publish in the Journal of Mechanical Design or Journal of Mechanisms and Robotics, Mechanical Engineering and and related fields, because that's where the applications of origami show up. And Connor, because I feel like you you're there in person, so you have some. You're there in the studio. You can yeah. see some things, or maybe out in the open. You had some favorite uh, pieces that maybe you thought, "Wow, that's amazing! How did you even dream of this?" Definitely. Well, the one I think my favorite coming in was the I think it's the unicorn. That's on your uh, table right there by the window. I just really like it, the way it's kind of uh, up in the air with its two uh, hooves up in front of it. That was really cool. Um, and well, and then another thing I saw, it wasn't one of your designs, but it was kind of what you're talking about of um, using origami in other uh, areas was the kayak or the fold-up kayak that you could undo and turn into a kayak. I thought that was really cool. Um, but, I mean, yeah, they, this his uh, home here, before the interview, you were um, kind enough to give us a tour and the origami here is amazing. And even outside and on the walkway up, there's pieces of origami that are displayed outside. I find that just so beautiful. Thank you. And, and since you mentioned uh, the unicorn and the pieces outside, that, that's a good reminder to talk about. Those are all, those, even the paper versions, are part of a collaboration I've done for about 10 years with a metal sculptor named Kevin Box. Um, Kevin is a classically trained sculptor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has long incorporated origami um, as motifs in his sculpting. And about 10 years ago, we started collaborating in ways where um, I would develop origami designs and then he would uh, render them as, as, as sculptures. But it it evolved into a much more collaborative process than you know just sort of hand- tossing something over the wall. And the unicorn is a really good example of of the collaboration extending even into the paper design. Uh, Kevin had 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 developed a, a horse years ago. Well, he worked with a, another origami artist and, and had a horse that he's used in a lot of his motifs. And we had a project together where. Um, a client requested a commission of a Pegasus. And so I developed origami designs uh, that that echoed the horse, which had become a motif of Kevin's, mm-hmm. but that, that resulted in a Pegasus. Um, and then Kevin came to me and he had, again, a, a client commission looking for a unicorn. And so once again, it was coming up with an origami design for the unicorn, but in a way that that echoed the motif of the of this original horse, mm-hmm. um, but yet also kind of was unique to how I go about designing. Mm-hmm. And we even iterated the design. I think I had done a version and 
and he said, can you, can you change, you know, aspects of this? And, uh, and, and I, you know, once he sort of called my attention to it, I thought, yeah, those would be good changes. And so I went back and did further design and that resulted in the unicorn that you saw. Mm -hmm. uh, so all the pieces you see outside are in fact metal sculptures, uh, oh, okay. which are, are cast from origami, either at original size or, or digitally enlarged from a paper original. Okay, I was wondering that because they, I mean, I didn't look close enough, but it looked like paper, and I was thinking, how could you have these outside? If it rains, it would just destroy these priceless works. Um, <laughs> yeah, fortunately, they're, they're bronze or stainless steel or okay. aluminum. So I'll they, have to take a, cl a closer look they, at them they then. They work quite well outside. So then you, you design the origami shape itself, and as you said, they cast the, they, they work off of or your, your frame. Yeah, so I designed and folded the origami shape. And depending on the size, um, in some cases, uh, they would start with the folded shape and make molds directly from the origami. Mm -hmm. um, and then for some of the larger pieces, start with the origami shape, but then do a high resolution scan and, and digitally scale that up, scale that up to make the molds mm. for the, for the uh, final casting. That must be really exciting to be able to work with an artist like with, that works in an entirely different material, but then to come together to try to figure something out. Oh, it, it's it's very exciting. It's been a wonderful collaboration. Like I said, we've we've been at it for ten years, um, and I think the reason it works um, is first that we bring complementary skills, uh, both of which are necessary to to the art, both the origami design and and the the skill in in, in casting. Um, we both have pretty strong artistic visions of, of what we want, but we're also both willing to, to accommodate or to the other's vision, I mean, to meld our visions. And I think that's, that's a tricky balance. It's, um, you know, I've, I've had people approach me about other uh, collaborations and they just, they, they didn't spark you know, because we didn't mesh with that right balance. But the, mm -hmm. the relationship I've had with Kevin is, has been, I think, pretty unique. And part of it is that he's a pretty unique artist. Well, yeah, I mean, in the results, you can see them. I think it's, it's kind of like music. I mean, since that's a topic I can speak on at length. I think with music, you have kind of like with different materials in origami, paper versus metal. With music, I mean, you have something like classical music, you have something like actual metal music and trying to combine them together. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. If it works, you can create these amazing melding of the two. <laughs> um, I do have a question. It might be a silly question. I don't really know. But have you ever seen or even attempted origami with metal? Like if it was, I guess, like maybe a thinner metal? Have you ever seen anyone try to do something like that? Or is that not really, really possible? No, it's definitely possible. Um, I've seen people do it. I've, I've done it myself. Okay. Um, I have folded... Uh, because I think, as I mentioned, I like to try different things. And, mm -hmm. and so I have folded uh, sheet metal, uh, metal mesh, um, tortillas, wonton wrappers, <laughs> wood veneer, uh, various types of plastic sheeting, um, and probably a lot more materials. Um, Does family get annoyed with you because you try to do origami at the dinner table or at restaurants with napkins and things? Or do you usually keep work separate? I usually keep the origami pretty separate from okay. my private life. In fact, um, you know, my wife, when we were first dating, um, she didn't 
we had been dating for a while. Um, and she didn't know I did origami until you know, one day she came over to my apartment and saw origami on the shelf and said, Where, where'd you get those? And I said, well, I made them. <laughs> and she, she didn't really believe it at first. <laughs> yeah. You just you tried to keep it subtle. You don't want to brag too much, but... Yeah, I, I keep it separate. I, th- I think there was a, there's always been a little bit of, um, at least as a kid, the view that there's a strong perception that origami was a child's play and nothing more. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I guess I, I almost felt a little bit embarrassed about it, the, you know, the, as a kid at least. Mm-hmm. Um, I've grown out of that as an adult. I'm happy to let people know that I do origami and... Uh, you know, and, and if they say, well, I think it's a child's play, I say, take a look at this. <laughs> Come tell to my me, studio. Tell me you if you think that, if you still think Tell that. me if a child can do this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. One thing that fascinates me, and I don't know if this is really origami proper, but you spoke about the ability to store and then deploy. And one thing that we're all sort of... Uh, deprived of in our cities as well is uh, space. (laughs) And so I don't know what some of those applications are in terms of using maybe an underlying origami principle to, you know, be able to reconfigure rooms or, you know, modular spaces, be able to expand and then contract. And you probably know some developments in architecture and design that I don't know of uh, along these lines. Yeah, there's, there is, there are both uh, developments um, sort of what you might call on the architecture side of, of, of buildings, um, shelters that transform. Um, and an example of that are things where you might want a retractable shelter um, whether for inclement weather, but then it opens up, you know, and, and not just the roof opened up, but the whole shelter retracts um, when you want to be out in the open. And, and there are origami, specific origami patterns that, that architects have adopted for for that sort of purpose. And then there's also, to address the, the space considerations you, you mentioned first, uh, what you might call home furnishings origami, uh, origami that that folds up, um, furniture that folds up. And, and indeed, there are uh, people have made chairs using origami principles that, that fold up. I mean, we've always had folding chairs uh, but they're kind of ungainly, but but you know really beautiful chairs that still uh, that are not composed of of pipes and you know and, and rivets, but are you know beautiful curved wood shapes, but that have hinges built in so that they so that they fold flat. Um, and as an example of a crossover, one of my colleagues uh, was a, a solar array designer for. Uh, for SpaceX, who and when he left, he left. He had been so he had been making fold-up shapes for space for many years. And when he left, he took up making fold-up furniture. And he has these brilliant and beautiful. His name's Brian Ignot, and he has these brilliant and beautiful folding lamps and uh, tables and the like that that fold up using origami principles. I think from from where I see it. It's, I mean, I have a very basic understanding of origami, but it seems like it was origami traditionally where it was just a piece of paper. There were some maybe kind of theories behind it. Um, and then kind of you, yourself and other people came along with computers, lasers, more advanced technology to make origami. Um, from your view, do you see another event like that coming? 
So how computers kind of change origami, you could go so much more complex. Is there something else that can change origami again and make it even more intricate or more detailed? Well, the, the origami has been more or less continuously changing, ratcheting up in, in the complexity and detail of the most complex origami. Now, I should emphasize that that's only one of many different threads of origami. So there are people exploring directions of origami that are not striving for greater complexity, but, um, but other aesthetic criteria, use of curved surfaces, soft folds, um, more naturalistic representations of abstract and human forms and the like. Mm -hmm. um, but, but this, to pick out that one thread that has been in, enhanced by computers, um, that continues to evolve, and, and I don't think there was a single break point. Uh, there's just been a steady increase. And uh, it's, it was accelerated by, or it was enabled um, by the evolution both of computer programs um, but, and mathematical techniques for design. And people continue to develop those. Um, one of the, some just truly amazing designs that I've seen just in the last couple of years have been done with a new computer program um, by a, a young Taiwanese engineer who wrote, wrote a computer program called uh, Boxpleat Studio that allows people for the first time to, on a computer, uh, design using this genre we call box pleating, which is the genre that the Black Forest Cuckoo Clock is in. Oh, okay. Um, but to do so in a kind of a systematic step-by-step -step and controlled way, and people are doing phenomenally complex designs now using that and I expect that will continue and there are folks who are continuing to explore the underlying mathematics of origami um, in ways that stand a good chance of leading to further innovations in design process so so I think it will continue to get more complex I don't think there will be a, a single transition point but just a, additional steps in this never-ending series. I think that's that's really exciting. I mean, learn, when I you know knew I was going to be doing the interview, I was excited because origami is interesting, but I kind of considered it as just an artistic discussion. But learning about you and how there's so much science behind it, it's really promising because not only can it advance artistically, but it can advance to make these ginormous telescopes, these types of solar panels, new types of spaceships. I mean, I'm very interested in space, so it's mm -hmm. it's cool to see this whole other side of it, that it can keep progressing and there's not really any ceiling to it. It can just keep going. Yeah, and the, um, the applications are always going to be constrained by the real-world engineering applications of, you know, things have to achieve goals of size, mass, weight, cost, uh, stiffness, uh, robustness, and and the like. Those goals have have always been there and always will be. Um, but on the artistic side, you know, we have much more freedom to uh, to explore. I mean, ultimately, we're constrained by how big a sheet of paper we can get and how much stress we can put on a sheet of paper. Mm -hmm. um, but we're we're really nowhere near the limits of what's possible there. Yeah. So I expect the artistic side. Uh, will continue to expand in possibilities. Yep. I'm imagining like a team of 
a hundred origami artists getting a piece of paper the size of a football field and trying to make something out of it together. <laughs> I don't know if that's been attempted, but it's uh, just a thought that came into my head. It has been done. Um, there is the, the Guinness Book of World Records of the world's largest origami crane. Oh, and that was, uh, I think the that record has moved around over the years, but the largest one was something like a football field size sheet of paper and a wow. team of many, many people um, who folded it mm. uh, and took place in a stadium. You know, they, they basically rented out a stadium so they could spread out the sheet. And, and so, it's, you know, it was 100 yards long or something like that. That's amazing. You know, what you've, what you've given us in terms of the world of your imagination and uh, the wider application of origami is immense. As you think about the future and uh, education, the environment, technology, and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what were some important lessons that helped you in life? I think the most important, I can distill it down to the most important one, which is a, a saying by uh, Louis Pasteur. He said, chance favors the prepared mind. And what that means, or at least what it means to me, is that you can't predict the opportunities that will come along for you. I certainly couldn't. Uh, my life seems to have been a series of surprises or a series of opportunities um, that I had no idea were in the offing. But what you can do is prepare yourself to take advantage of opportunities when they do come along. And, and that preparation for me and what I would encourage others to do is um, to learn about a lot of different areas you mentioned very early on in this interview that origami was interdisciplinary. And I think that's been the key. Most new things are interdisciplinary. They don't fit neatly within the confines of, of a well-defined field or boundary. Um, but if you learn a lot of different things, you'll, be, you'll have little bits of experience and knowledge that you can draw upon to go into that interdisciplinary field and, and work on it. So... Um, so learn a lot of different things. And how do you go about doing that? I think the best way is follow your curiosity. Um, curiosity is a wonderful thing. Um, and people, people often tamp down their own curiosity because they think, well, this isn't going to lead somewhere. This will never be useful. Um, this isn't contributing, contributing directly to my current goal. And I think we need to relax those constraints and say, if it looks interesting or if it looks fun, that's, that's enough justification to go explore that a little further. Exactly, because that's the principle of evolution and that's how we've discovered things uh, that we weren't even looking for because our imagination is limited, but we discover it along the way so many other things. So we want to thank you, uh, Robert Lang, for your, your the example of your curiosity, for inviting us into your imaginative world and by sharing your creative process and complexity of your designs, inviting us to examine how we might reimagine other systems Thank you for helping us appreciate the underlying beauty and harmony and design of all forms. Thank you for adding your voice to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. You're very welcome. 
The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Connor Kinsley with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Connor Kinsley. Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcast, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.